So now you see China, India, and Europe all desperate for natural gas. Yeah. And again, to your point, this is going to be not just simply something that's happening as a result of this confluence of events. This is something we're going to see over the course, I think, of the next uh, you know, 10, 20 years, where uh, energy security is going to be vital. And, and, and part of it's going to be you're going to see nations becoming much more aggressive and allowing more aggressive behavior in the global system to be able to make sure that they can get their own energy sources secure, because nations will not let their people freeze to death and will not let their people starve to death. They will do lots that they have to do to make sure that they can provide for their, their populations, even if it means war. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff, here with my favorite occasional co-host, Lloyd Graff. Today's show is part one of a two-part series discussing the current state of the global energy supply and how it ultimately relates to the war in Ukraine. Our guest is Dr. Andrew R. Thomas, business professor and author of many books covering global strategy, security, and energy. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graphpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I am very, very honored and thrilled to be back with Andrew R. Thomas, author. He's got a PhD in business. Um, He's a professor at Akron University. This is the second time he's been on the podcast. He was only on the podcast a couple months ago, but with all that's going on right now in the world, uh, as far as Russia and oil and uh, natural gas, etc., I said, "Damn, I have to have him on." And even this is episode 150. Normally, we would sort of be self-indulgent and gloat for such a milestone, but this is so much more important. Can't wait to get started. First thing I want is just for you to give us the brief Cliff Notes background of yourself, just so we we get a little context to where you're coming from. Sure. Well, first of all, I, I wouldn't diminish 150 podcasts. I think that's a, a great accomplishment. Congratulations. It seems more alive today than uh, than ever, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. Thank you. Most podcasts I know don't make it uh, even a fraction of that. So well done. And it's great to be back. It really is. I, I'm honored that, uh, that you, you would invite me. Uh, background. Uh, I had a business career long before uh, I became a uh, international business professor. Uh, I had the opportunity to build motorcycles and uh, ship them uh, to our distributor network in Latin America and Africa. Did that for about 10 years. Uh, and then uh, 
after we sold the business, I ended up uh, writing some books. Uh, I've, I've done 25 books, either as an editor or an author. That's incredible. Most of them are at the intersection of global strategy, business, development, uh, security, and energy. And uh, I've been at the University of Akron since 2003. I continue to travel uh, as it's one of the, my great passions. And uh, that, that's it's wonderful. I get to speak to so many people around the world now, not as a as a sales guy, uh, more as a as a book author, and, and and folks share lots of knowledge you normally couldn't glean anywhere else except uh, at that level, and it's it's been wonderful. So, 2018, uh, I published uh, a book called uh, American Shale Energy and the Global Economy. Talked about the implications from a business as well as a geopolitical perspective of the fracking revolution. I did a uh, a follow on that I just completed the manuscript on. It's called the, the Canal of Panama and Globalization. Uh, future growth and challenges in the 21st century. And you you live part of the time in Panama. I do. Yeah, I'm a resident. Uh, we have a home there. And uh, I spend probably three or four months a year in Panama. Uh, and I, I really wanted to take all that I had done previously and, and kind of synthesize it into this book, looking at the future of globalization, particularly as it relates to energy, and contextualize it within the future of the, of the Panama Canal. Well, that's sort of, uh, that's sort of important right now. <laughs> it is, and you know, and the canal has been very important for uh, for the fracking revolution or for global energy. So, uh, with all that's going on, it seems very relevant uh, at this point. I'll just say one other thing very quickly. I did also do a book in 2014 on uh, Romania and Moldova. Right. Uh, it was called uh, Romania and Moldova at the crossroads, and you can imagine the crossroads of Russia and uh, Eastern Europe. So, uh, and I did my PhD work in Romania. So I spent a lot of time in both both Moldova and Romania. So I, I'm familiar with that region uh, more as a student and as a writer than than as a business person. Uh, still, though, it uh, it just seems like there's been a coalescing around all of these topics recently, and I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Well, I mean, I was just thinking about all that, and I said, if there's anybody we need to talk to, is this and. Even the last interview, unfortunately, I had to cut some of it for length and I cut a lot of the good stuff about fracking. And I said, all right, I need to have him back sometime to discuss this. Um, today, we're going to talk about Russia. We're going to talk about fracking. They're both really integrated. Before we get to Russia, I just want a really brief, give us the like 10-year-old explanation of fracking, just because, I mean, I hear about it all the time. I've done some research on it, and even I'm a little bit blurry on it. What does it do? How does it work? And give us a little bit of info on the hubbub about the environmental ramifications, and then we'll break into some other stuff. Sure. Uh, well, fracking is is nothing new. We've been uh, making holes in the earth and shattering uh, shale at a rock, which uh, contains fossilized carbon, uh, which is ultimately becoming oil, natural gas, coal. Uh, we've been uh, making holes in the earth for, for probably thousands of years to either extract water or then later oil. Really kind of in the United States, it started back in the late 19th century in, in, in uh, Titusville, Pennsylvania. They were shooting uh, artillery shells uh, down holes from old Civil War cannon and breaking up the rock and loosening it up to the point where... How long ago was that? That was in the 1870s, 1880s. Wow. Fracking is, you know, the, the origin of it is, is fracturing. So fracturing the rock under the surface of the earth to get out the, uh, the trapped carbon fossils, particularly oil and natural gas. So we've been doing that fracturing underneath the surface of the earth since you know, the late 19th century. 
it, it became a clearly a process that, uh, that like all processes, it, it becomes shared. People tinker with it. There's innovation and all kinds of uh, interesting new ideas and thoughts get shared around it. And by the, you know, the 1940s, uh, Halliburton, a name a lot of people are familiar with, along with other companies, really began to experiment with shooting water, high, high injection water uh, down holes in the ground, uh, wells, if you will, you know, to bust up the rock. And, and that process pretty much remained the same uh, until uh, the early um, 90s. Well, yeah, I was going to say the early to mid 90s. And was that not profitable until then? Really? Like- no, no, it was very profitable. It, it was pretty inefficient, and it wasn't always predictable in terms of what would happen. And then, of course, in the 90s, energy prices crashed throughout most of that decade, particularly the late 90s. And in the Permian Basin out, outside of Dallas, the Mitchell Energy Company was on the verge of going bankrupt because energy prices were so low. I think we're 15 or 20 bucks a barrel. So that's why it wasn't profitable. Yeah. And so uh, there was a, uh, a young engineer who was going to lose his job, a kid by the name of Nick Steinsberger, who's probably should go down in history as one of the great innovators of the 20th century. He was worried about losing his job, and he got some permission from his boss, George Mitchell, to uh, shoot not just water, but lots of, lots of water. I mean, PSI that was you know, 20, 30 times more intense than they had shot down a well before, on the belief that if we really shatter the rock, fracture it, uh, we'd be able to open up some some of the more uh, trapped hydrocarbons, oil and natural gas. And they did that. And amazingly, to everybody's surprise, more and more uh, production in that well occurred. And so we saw kind of a fracturing, maybe we call it 3.0, 4.0, in terms of the evolution of that process. What really changed, though, was that was out, that was important. What really changed, though, was, and we don't know who really developed it, was people tinkering again. That's that great American spirit of ideas, having sex, if you will, and kind of a biological perspective where we interchange with each other and we come up with new ideas. And eventually, the the, the horizontal drill was melded with this. Right, the angle. Yeah, where you could take the drill down and then turn it. And uh, you could go in any number of directions. So instead of having to drill 20 wells or 10 wells, you would only have to do one, and then you could turn the, the drill bit and, and go you know, parallel to the, to the surface of the earth. And you could go 5, 10, 20,000 feet one direction, pull the drill bit back, go 20,000 feet another direction, 20,000 feet in a third direction. So you could become incredibly efficient in terms of not having to drill multiple holes. It would be more environmentally friendly. From a business perspective, though, it, it just saved a huge amount of capital uh, in terms of having to, uh, I guess, not having to drill so many holes. And so you can get oil and natural gas from fracking? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's still hard for me to visualize. So after you drill the holes, then what happens? Gravity works. It surfaces to the, arises to the surface, uh, and then it's captured at the surface, and, and natural gas is put into uh, one area. Uh, oil is put into another pipeline, and uh, you know, it dispersed there. And it's an incredibly efficient now process. And, of course, this, this has evolved over Really, this, the melding of these two technologies was sometime around you know, 2006, 2007. So we're 15 years, 16 years out from this. So you can imagine, uh, we've, we've been doing this for a long time, and these are very smart people. These are very innovative people. They're entrepreneurs. Hey, we haven't been doing it very long. I mean, that's really interesting. So it makes it so much more current. Um, and, and if I could just add one more thing, Noah, yeah. the, the other thing that's important here is the fact that this all occurred spontaneously. If we go back 20 years or 25 years, 
uh, really kind of into the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a, a, a critical awareness on the part of our leadership uh, at, at a military level, at a, at a national government level, business people as well. They knew that we had a, a serious Achilles heel, and that was our dependency upon foreign energy to operate not just the U.S. economy, but the total global capitalist system. And, and you heard uh, every president from, from Bill Clinton to George W. Bush to Barack Obama in that period of time say, we got to do something about energy. And I, we would not have invaded Iraq. That was what I was going to say. I mean, that's two wars. So, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, that's how critical this was. And everybody was saying, uh, you know, this is, and of course, 9-11 happens. A lot of the people who did what they did on 9-11 came from countries that were selling us energy or our allies' energy. There was, there was real concern and it, it was valid concern. And then all of a sudden, it so often happens with innovation and human creativity out of nowhere, seemingly, uh, this shows up. And the United States, which was building massive import terminals for liquid natural gas along our Gulf Coast, uh, now has converted all of those to export. We are the largest energy producer once again, as we were for a significant period of time in the first half of the 20th century. We're now the, uh, the biggest energy producer today. And, and again, nobody saw this coming. This was uh, just a natural evolution of, of, of creativity, innovation. I think it was something that could only have been made in America as well. So it's something we should be proud of. Which is, of course, why all these other countries hate this, I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> it just makes the United States even more powerful and influential than, uh, the, than it was previously. Sure. Okay. Before we go any further, you hear a lot of bad stuff about fracking. Uh, you know, there was a movie called Gasland a couple years ago. You know, there's a lot of primary sources, like it can be pretty bad for water. It could cause earthquakes to some extent. Give me the spin on what are the issues? It's, I mean, it is great because it potentially could bring us riches and make us independent, but what's the sacrifice? According to some people. Yeah, well, what, what, what occurred at the beginning is, is not uncommon. Uh, innovation gets way ahead of, of regulation. And there's again, there's just unforeseen things that occur when you're when you're involved in something that's that's never been done before. So there were a couple issues initially with when fracking started. And I'm here in Ohio, eastern Ohio. So uh, a lot of this was happening here around the same time it started in Texas, late 2008, 2009. The issue, of course, was two, twofold, really. Uh, one is, are we drilling near to the water table, uh, to, to the drinking water? Uh, and it, there were some circumstances initially when this happened because people were really excited to make this uh, a, a possibility that they just they started making holes wherever they, they thought it was good for them without really consideration for other issues. And then there was also the issue of what to do with uh, the cocktail mix, if you want to call it such, the, uh, the fracking fluid uh, that is shot down into the well to fracture the rock. It's not just uh, high intensity or high pressure water. It's a combination of, of some chemicals. Uh, sulfuric acid is usually one of them. Guar, which is used in Twinkies and Ho-Hos and, and uh, other products to keep our, our creams and our, our shaving creams and, and our toothpaste all consistent. Uh, and, and, and again, water. So this, this, this cocktail, and it's not a very good cocktail. It's not one you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want that cocktail in, in your drinking water and you wouldn't want it pooling near, near your home. Uh, so the question was what to do with that fluid. The, the fluid was necessary to keep the, the, the shale open once, once it was fractured and allow the energy to escape and, and flow to the surface. The question was what to do with that. And at the beginning, people didn't know. And since this was all experimental, uh, there were some bad things that happened to that fluid. In this case, in, in Eastern Ohio here, 
somebody dumped the fluid into the Mahoning River, got caught doing it, went to jail. Uh, environmental contamination is in nobody's interest, including the industry. So as we've seen with all innovation, it takes government time to catch up. And, and eventually they did. At one point, though, what they were doing is a way to try to protect the environment and process or get rid of or dispose of this fluid that was very contaminated and very dirty is they just did injection wells. They would go 20, 30,000 feet into the surface of the earth. They would concrete line that one well, and they would just bury this fluid, hoping it wouldn't leak. At the same time, in many cases, in most cases, it didn't leak. The issue, though, was they were going through uh, geograph- geologic plates and causing earthquakes. <laughs> Because that was a long way down into the surface of the earth. So, again, nobody had done this before. We're learning as we're going. Uh, was there some bad things that happened? Were there some bad actors? Sure. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think, though, that the response now that we have a solid history of, of almost two decades of learning about this and seeing what happens, I, I, I think it's abundantly clear that uh, you know the regulators have caught up. And, and in the United States, which is very unique. It, it could be done right. It, yeah, it can be done right. And, and it is done right. Okay. So my understanding from what we talked about before is that the government, federal government, for political reasons, they want us to be energy independent. They want to support business, but they don't want to offend their constituents. So they leave it open to the states to make the regulations. Yeah, that's the federal system at work. We saw this with the pandemic, where it was different states, different governors, different responses. It's been the same way. And really, it was the Obama administration that allowed federalism to take hold here. Uh, The Obama administration certainly left of center and had a left of center Congress for a number of years. When confronted with what are we going to do with fracking, they very quickly said, well, the national EPA at the federal level has some very, I'd say them pretty wide open guidelines in terms of what, uh, what needs to happen. And the rest would be left to the states to decide. And that's what we've seen in America. And again, a very unique system. Nowhere else in the world do we have such a, a rigorous federal system. So I'm in Ohio again. Uh, the, uh, the state here has done, I think, an exceptional job. I, I say that as a, as a hometown guy in terms of regulating uh, the industry. Pennsylvania was a little bit slower. Uh, they've done a better job. Other states, though, uh, like New York, they've said we don't want it. Uh, and other states, which are kind of still the Wild West, uh, Texas and Oklahoma, they're really kind of doing whatever they want. It's, it's not in the in- interest of the industry, though. And I say this not as a show for the industry. I've never really spoken to an industry association or anything. I'm just looking at this as a researcher. It's not in the interest of the industry to be destroying the planet or, or, or local water tables or anything, because they know the government would come in and just simply shut it off. It's better to, to be a good citizen, to be, uh, to be cognizant of the environment, keep the air and the water clean, and they'll be able to make their money. And again, it's a lot easier said uh, when, you, when you have a, a state regulation rather than dealing with a massive federal bureaucracy. Listeners, first... I got to tell you, I'm so grateful for you guys tuning in. I know we have lots of competition out there. Freakonomics, This American Life, Joe Rogan. Also, I just want to let you know, if you have guest ideas or questions for me or Lloyd, we'd love for you to reach out. And if you want to talk about future advertising opportunities, we're very happy to talk to you anytime. Feel free to email me at noah at grafpinkert.com. That's N-O-A-H at G-R-A-F-F-P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. And now, back to the episode. 
So Texas and Oklahoma are really bad. I would expect them to be one of the biggest sources of it, of the natural gas and oil, right? Or no? Yeah, I don't I don't know if they're bad. I, th- I don't know if that's the right word. I mean, the, the regulation there is less than it is in other states and has been. They've also experienced some earthquakes and, and some other issues later on down the line. Uh, yet at the same time, I mean, those are the most, uh, Texas particularly is the most productive state when it comes to fracking by far in terms of producing oil and natural gas. I mean, the Permian Basin is, it's been historically the best place for oil and natural gas in the United States for more than a century. Uh, and it continues to be. Okay. So that brings us uh, a little bit more towards the present and what you have, even though we've got this great technology and we could be energy independent, there's less fracking, slower growth, and that's because of low investment from private investment. Is is that right? Yeah. One of the stories a lot of people miss talking about this evolution of, 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 of the fracking revolution, and I believe it to be a revolution, is that interest rates as they are now, and they have been recently since the pandemic, interest rates were artificially low as a result of the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, even beyond. So investors didn't know where to put their capital. They weren't going to leave it in the bank. Uh, There was money, of course, invested in the stock market. And a lot of private capitalists saw this new technology, this this emerging knowledge in a a very impressive way. And so a lot of capital, probably over a, a trillion and a half dollars, was invested. Again, private capital into building the infrastructure and to supporting the growth of this industry. I think had we been in a more normal interest rate environment, uh, unlike what, what, what it was in the midst of the financial crisis, you wouldn't have seen all of that capital flow in. I think that was just a place where people thought that they could get a better return on their investment than it had put. In, during the financial crisis. And beyond, because interest rates were artificially low, if you recall, even uh, a year or two after the, the crisis really effectively ended. Interest rates have been low for 15 years. Yeah, that's right. So uh, had we not been in this overall below normal interest rate environment, you may not have gotten the capital. And, and one of the results was a, a lot of people were putting capital in knowing that the return on that investment in the in the shale energy revolution wasn't going to be that good. In fact, it was very disappointing. I think what they were doing was they were betting, as Amazon shareholders have or, or other tech company uh, in, investors have, that one day this will pay off. And uh, it really never did. Uh, that's that's one of the backstories of, of the fracking revolution is, is the, the return on investment has been pretty poor. That's interesting. And, and part of that is because uh, the, the effectiveness of the, of the shale energy revolution kept energy prices low. And so uh, even as, as we were enjoying the bounty as consumers and as a nation of, of energy security and, and lower monthly bills, the investors were seeing the rates of natural gas, particularly the cost of natural gas, also oil, though, uh, fall precipitously. So they want to keep the supply under control and not take as much advantage of it just to keep the prices up. Well, that, that could potentially be something going forward that we see is that uh, the, the investors are getting wiser and, and they're saying, OK, why do we need to flood the world with cheap energy? It's not serving us in terms of our return on investment. Why don't we keep it supply lower, keep prices somewhat higher, and we get a better ROI. That might very well be a trend line going forward, particularly given that the fact that to get now access to new shale plays, uh, in other words, to, to go back and get energy out of the ground, we have to go deeper because a lot of the less deep, if you will, uh, wells have been done. And so there's lots of shale out there. Deeper you go, the more expensive it is. And then you had uh, 
Vladimir Putin and the Saudis get together and conspire to keep oil prices high, correct? Well, they, they wanted to keep them low because they wanted to drive the frackers out of business. Oh, interesting. Because they thought the frackers could only survive at $60 a barrel or $70 a barrel. And then to your point, they, they just they wanted to keep driving this down and down and down to get it to maybe $30 or $40 a barrel. And then the frackers will go out of business. The reason that didn't occur is because what happened, and again, this, this speaks of desperation being the mother of, of invention in many ways. Uh, to stay in business, you had to find ways to get rid of inefficiencies, to reduce costs. And so as they were driving down the cost of energy to try to put the frackers out of business, what they did was a lot of, a lot of frackers did go out of business. A lot of investors lost their shirts. Those who stayed, though, became better. They became more efficient. They became more creative. They were able to be profitable even at 40 or $35 a barrel oil and natural gas being at all-time lows. They were able to be able to function at that level primarily because they had to. Again, a lot of the industry went away. A lot of workers left, a huge amount of bankruptcies. Uh, and that was all pre-COVID, of course. Uh, so to your point, it was the Saudis. It was OPEC. It was, it was the Russians really trying to drive the American frackers out of business keeping uh, oil prices and natural gas prices really lower than they, they should have been. And yet it remains. The fra- and, and part of it is we spent that trillion and a half dollars, we as a society, the private capitalists, did, and the infrastructure is still there. It hasn't gone away. And therefore, we have that tremendous competitive advantage that nobody else on earth has with regards to, to being able to do this and, and turn it on or turn it off, relatively speaking, uh, at different moments. Interesting. And you said before, Putin, he actually spread propaganda about the hazards of fracking, right? Because he was trying to stop it. He was trying to fire up the uh, the environmental crowd to say, hey, this is awful. This is terrible. We, we can't be doing it this way. Uh, it's, it's ruining the water. It's ruining uh, the environment. It's, it's killing in, endangered species. It's, it's ruining uh, whole cities, et cetera, et cetera. Not true. Uh, yet at the same time, it was trying to get uh, a division occur within this country uh, to try to drive people away from uh, supporting this. Okay. And so this brings us across the Atlantic Ocean now to uh, Germany, Russia, Europe. They don't frack over there, do they? Uh, the British have to a, a, a small extent. The British did get into this for a while. Again, though, the environmental pushback is huge because anywhere else in the world, it has to the decisions have to occur at the national level, meaning that, that you don't let states and individual property rights owners. I guess one thing I should have said initially is, is that in the United States, mineral rights are privately held. So if you have a piece of property and, and you've been able to acquire the mineral rights or the mineral rights transferred when you bought the property, you can control what happens to those mineral rights. That's an American thing, uniquely to our country. The rest of the world, the mineral rights are completely controlled by the national government. So it's their decision what, what to do with uh, anything that's under the ground. And of course, it's very political. Europe has always tried to be more, I guess, green than, than the United States. So th- this, again, was a, a uniquely uh, American phenomenon. The British did it for a while. Uh, it met a lot of opposition because there was great, grave concerns about it. Other nations are doing it. Argentina is doing it right now, uh, again, at a national level. Romania is talking about doing it. Uh, again, at a national level. Most of Europe, though, the rest of Europe, you're talking about Germany or, or um, Belgium or any of the other places where it could happen, they've just outright said no way. Okay. So back to natural gas, you have the United States 
I was doing a little research and I saw the natural gas guys tried to convince the environmentalists that fracking was a good thing because in the meantime, while you're getting green technology, this could be a stopgap because it's supposed to release less emissions. So Germany was, they were saying the same thing, correct? Well, what the Germans embarked upon over a decade ago was they were going to be green. They were going to, first they were going to be green by 2020, and that didn't happen. And when they meant green, they meant all in green. I mean, windmills and renewables and uh, geothermal, they were going to get rid of nuclear and they were going to get rid of any fossil fuels. And they spent 600 billion uh, euros to try to make that happen. And they woke up one day and they realized it wasn't possible. And when was that now? They embarked upon this in 2010. This was part of their response, I think, to stimulating their economy after the financial crisis. So we're going we're gonna to invest in renewable and clean energy. Was Schroeder in charge then? No, that was Merkel. That was Merkel's okay, government. Okay, so that was, okay. Yeah. Even though they were still bringing in natural gas, uh, and still are in large quantities, the idea was is that natural gas eventually would transition out. It would be replaced by much cleaner energy, not including nuclear. They, they were, with all intents and purposes, getting rid of nuclear as they've just done. Uh, and then they woke up not long ago and realized our energy bills are huge because we don't have a consistent energy source. We're still dependent upon Russia in many ways for our natural gas energy. And so very quietly, uh, without a lot of fanfare, you know, they've now announced that they are going to start building liquid natural gas terminals to import natural gas from uh, the United States and really kind of pull way back on their uh, strategy of trying to go clean. And when did they say that? They just announced a couple of weeks ago the building of the LNG terminals. Okay, but before that, before this whole mess in Ukraine, and I mean, it has been going on, they were still like, okay with the status quo of bringing in natural gas? Yeah, because what happened was the energy prices started spiking across the world, including uh, particularly in Europe uh, in the last couple of years as as we've come out of the pandemic. uh, Europe really took it on the chin, including Germany, including the UK specifically, uh, with regards to the fact that the renewable energy plan just wasn't delivering what they needed. And uh, then they go back to the salvation of natural gas and they realize how the natural gas prices have more than doubled. And that supply is scarce for a lot of reasons, some of what we talked about already. And now they're kind of in this in this terrible middle ground where they really can't abandon natural gas, although they, they've made proclamations that they want to and they, they want to be clean. Uh, and they've also retired their nuclear power plants just recently as well, which is a big hit to energy supply. Uh, so add on top of this what's going on in, to their east in Ukraine and, and Belarus and in that region, and and they're they're in a real tough spot. So that's why they announced very quietly two weeks ago we're going to start building LNG term liquid natural gas terminals to import energy, probably from the United States. Okay, well, Andrew, tell us about the liquid natural gas revolution, which has taken place over the last ten years. Yeah, really, and that's a great point. The fracking revolution really is about natural gas. I mean, we think about oil because that's what we put in our cars, and that's the most proximate energy source that we have. Really, this has been a natural gas revolution, uh, more than even uh, oil. And uh, natural gas is vital for so many things, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in heating, uh, increasingly it's being used in transport. Uh, so natural gas is really the, uh, the driver of the fracking revolution. And uh, anybody who uses natural gas to heat their home until recently, I mean, we weren't paying hardly anything here in the United States because we, we had such an abundance of natural gas. And as I mentioned, we were planning to import natural gas 
just you know, 20 years ago, we were building huge terminals to import natural gas. And now we have the fracking revolution. So now we have a, an American abundance of it. And so we're one of the biggest exporting nations in the world. The three biggest importing nations in the world for natural gas in order are China, Japan, and South Korea. And a lot of our energy, natural gas energy that's being exported is going there. Increasingly, though, there's a demand uh, for American natural gas because our prices are lower than most of the world uh, for Europe. Are we still importing natural gas, even though we're exporting it? Uh, no, we're maybe importing some natural gas liquids specific to particular industries. And we are importing different kinds of oils, uh, but we're pretty much energy independent. And we're now a net exporter of energy, particularly when it comes to natural gas. And, and, you know, we need to remember the four fundamental elements of human society today are ammonia, plastics, concrete, and steel. And those things are all driven by natural gas. And, and ammonia, of course, is about fertilizer, uh, making agriculture possible. Uh, so when you see uh, natural gas abundance, you see lower concrete prices, lower plastic prices, lower uh, food prices. There's direct relationships there. And that's been a wonderful thing for the world until uh, until recently. Uh, really started before the pandemic, this, this shift in terms of being able to take advantage of the natural gas revolution in the United States, and then some bad policy decisions by the Europeans, shortages in Asia, uh, lots of other factors even have, have entered in to make this now a very wild time. Uh, please tell us about China's energy situation. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a mess. They've had rolling blackouts now since October because they just simply don't have enough coal and certainly not enough natural gas either to, to be able to fire up all of their plants and, and, and heat all of their homes and businesses. Uh, they've uh, very quietly since October, when President Xi was uh, really confronted with the biggest domestic energy situation China's had in 20 years, they started buying coal again from North Korea in violation of UN sanctions, which doesn't really rile anybody too much. I thought what was interesting, though, is they are buying Australian coal as well. And this is the same country, China, that said they would no longer buy any imports from Australia when in uh, late 2020, the Australian government asked for an investigation of the origins of COVID-19. That's when the Chinese government said, we're not going to import Australian wine, Australian uh, iron ore, or Australian coal. And now, very quietly, they're, they're importing coal again because they simply uh, they don't have uh, enough energy domestically right now. They're not even importing enough to be able to, to, to fire up their all the aspects of their economy. And that's one reason you're seeing China's economy really kind of grind down right now. And are they also buying American LNG and American coal? Yeah, they're, they're buying a lot from the United States. I mean, that was one of the reasons I, I wrote the book on the Panama Canal. A lot of that LNG uh, that and even liquid natural gas and natural gas liquids, NGL and L, LNG, a lot of that's flowing through the uh, the canal going to China, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, and of course, we shouldn't be remiss that a week before the Olympics, when Putin uh, met with Premier Xi, I'm sure they were talking about you know their athletes competing in in Beijing, right? I mean, they weren't talking about anything else. <laughs> uh, that uh, you know that that energy wasn't the top of the list of that discussion, as well as the invasion of Ukraine. Because uh, uh, the, the Chinese know very well that that is a, like it was for us 20 years ago, before the fracking revolution, the Chinese know that uh, energy is a big Achilles heel. In fact, it's probably next to agricultural imports, their second biggest Achilles heel as a nation. And that if they can't find energy sources around the world to meet domestic demand, they are going to be in a very, very tough spot, as they are right now. 
And so they're buying our natural gas too, the U.S. natural gas. Yeah, they're you know, the, the, one of the reasons natural gas spiked last year is because the Chinese, when the, when it was abundantly clear that the pandemic was going to become moving more to a manageable phase, they went out and bought all the natural gas and coal they could find, and they drove the prices up for both, and they still didn't get all that they needed to be able to sustain themselves this winter. And therefore, you've seen, and India was India was doing the same thing. Really. Uh, they were, yeah, India is a big importer of natural gas and coal, and they were not to the point where China is, where they've had rolling blackouts across their country. But India was pretty close to that in going into uh, October, November of last year. So now you see China, India, and Europe all desperate for natural gas. Yeah. And again, the, the, to your point, it's uh, it, this is going to be not just simply something that's happening as a result of this confluence of events. This is something we're going to see over the course, I think, of the next uh, you know, 10, 20 years, where uh, energy security uh, is going to be vital. Uh, and, and, and part of it's going to be you're going to see nations becoming much more aggressive and, and allowing more aggressive behavior in the global system to be able to make sure that they can get their own energy sources secure. Because nations will not let their people freeze to death and will not let their people starve to death. They will do lots that they have to do to make sure that they can provide for their populations, even if it means war. On the next episode of Swarfcast. Andrew, now tell us where Ukraine fits into this. I guess I'm a little kind of blown away by how people have been uh, reacting to the invasion of Ukraine. I, you know, it started eight years ago when, when Putin rolled in uh, and nobody did anything. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com.